welcome back to the Axe Murder Diaries. I'm your host, Amanda Millette, and today we're talking about the murder of John Whalen in Washington, Massachusetts. So John Whalen was a boarder in the house of William and Francis Coy. The Boston Globe um, kindly described the home as a miserable shanty on a mountain road in the village of Washington, some 16 miles from Pittsfield. So I sort of picked this case because Pittsfield, Mass. is only about an hour from me. Um, So hopefully I'll be able to see if there's any graves or anything over there and get back to you. Maybe post something on the Instagram page. But John Whalen went missing in August of 1891, and rumors started that led the police to investigate. What they found in the Coy home made them arrest William Coy for murder before the body was found. Conveniently, the body was found the next day. To quote the Berkshire Eagle, his mutilated body buried in the woods and discovered by a dog, the worst crime in the history of Berkshire. John Whalen was done to death in a lonely house in the town of Washington last August, and his dismembered body was buried in the woods where the red-handed murderer thought it was hidden forever. So you'll come to find that the murderer was not intelligent if he thought that he would not get caught. So the discovery. So his body was found a mile and a half southwest of the Washington Depot, and this depot will play a part in the story. So Selectman Pomeroy was out walking his dog, Captain. He was tired, so they took a shortcut through the Koi yard. um, Captain started barking and pawing at the earth. He uncovered a man's suspender that was fastened to something underground. News was telegraphed to Detective Pease. Detective Pease and Sheriff Cutting arrived at the Coy house and found newspapermen from the Berkshire Eagle were already there. So, it's kind of funny because the way to describe it is the newspapermen were kind of bragging a little. It's like, um, they heard about the, um, John Whalen's disappearance more or less at the same time the police did, and they both were sort of conducting conducting an investigation and the newspapermen happened to go to the um, the depot and they asked around and they told them that the body had just been found. Um, so they headed to the Coy house. So when the police showed up, um, the newspapermen were already there because they had heard about the body as well. So Selectman Pomeroy led um, the police, the newspapermen, and a party of interested villagers into the woods Quote, over decayed leaves, slippery stones, rotting tree trunks, and through the rasping underbrush, the party stumbled along while the rain fell in torrents. Very dramatic. Very dramatic. About 100 yards from the road, Selectman Pomeroy said, there is the place. There was nothing to show that it was the burial place of a human being. It was a small hollow beside a log, and the surface did not differ in any respect from, the gra- from that around. When the dirt was removed with shovels and hose, the decomposing body of poor John Whalen was brought to light. The body was apparently doubled up, making a heap about four feet long and two and a half feet wide. It was not more than 18 inches below the surface of the ground, and the work of the removal was not difficult. The stench which arose from the body was almost unbearable. I can't even imagine. The remains. Medical examiner Paddock arrived around 5.30 and removed the body. Upon examination, he found the skull was crushed in, the throat cut, and both legs cut off at the thighs. 
Quote, the skull was evidently crushed with the butt of the axe, and the throat appears to have been cut with the same weapon. The body was in a fair state of preservation. Now, I'm wondering what their, exactly their scale is from, like, excellent condition to poor, because this must be just above poor, because the body was chopped up and only, like, two feet below the, the, the surface, so breakdown would have been pretty significant, I think. So this is what makes the case interesting, the affair. So after the death of her first husband four years prior, Frances married William Coy, who was, to quote the newspaper, a shiftless sort of a farm laborer whose life had been spent in the neighborhood of Washington. So John Whalen was employed as a section hand on the Boston and Albany Railroad. He was boarding with the Coys for $2.50 per week. Quote, During the summer, Whalen told Coy that he had been intimate with, this, with Mrs. Coy, but this did not prevent his remaining a member of the household for some reason. Mrs. Coy and John Whalen planned to run away together to elope. The plan was for Mrs. Coy to leave home on Friday, August 28, 1891, and meet John in Troy, New York. John planned to pack both of their clothes and collect his paycheck and head to Troy on Monday. Then the plan was for them to both head to Michigan. On Friday, Mrs. Coy told her husband she was going to Three Rivers. Instead, she spent the night in North Beckett and then went to Albany, New York, and stayed at the Globe Hotel until Monday morning. She went to the depot to take a train to Troy, and there she saw her husband. Dun, dun, dun. He became suspicious when her trunk was completely empty and John's was heavy. Quote, she consented to return home with him and on Monday afternoon they were back at the little tumble-down structure they called home. Very kind newspapers. So let's talk about John's disappearance. Um, so when Mrs. Coy came home, something felt off and she was a little scared, especially after seeing signs of a uh, struggle in John's room. Now, I think a struggle is a bit of an understatement. Um, inside, there was a bloody shirt, a splash of blood on the headboard of the bed, and two large blood spots on the wall. A large piece of the rug was cut out, part of the pillow was cut off, and two large squares were cut out of the mattress. She showed this to her neighbor, Mrs. Eliza Gear, um, and for some reason, Mrs. Gear the next day let the Coys stay the night at her home both Francis and William Coy. So, I mean, she sounds like a really great neighbor, but that sounds unsafe, um, considering she saw what happened. Like, it's very clearly a murder scene, but... So, so and they actually ended up staying there for two weeks. So in the two weeks, the Coy stayed there. William Coy drank heavily, seemed restless and uneasy, and kept inquiring about where John was. I can't even imagine, like, like they leave this bloody mess because Mrs. Coy doesn't feel safe sleeping in her own home. And there's William Coy, the murderer, um, drunk and being like, where's John at? Like, ugh. Um, so William ended up getting a new job in Westfield, and they moved there, which is about 30 miles away. Quote, they left behind them the mutilated bedding and carpets and the blood-stained headboard, and in the deserted but under the hill, the morning sun played on the two red spots, which showed plainly on the cheap paper. Now, I love the newspapers, how they so artistically describe 
um, the sun playing on the blood on the wall. Um, so John Wayland's trunk was kept at Eliza Gear's house for him to retrieve, but mysteriously, he never came to retrieve it. Uh, people started talking about the disappearance, um, started getting around the neighborhood that his room was basically a bloody, cut-up mess. One neighbor of the Coy house, Mrs. Frost, started telling people she overheard a row at the Coy house the night of the last day he was seen. A rumor was going around that after John's disappearance, William Coy was flush with money. So William Coy's story. The rumors made their way to the police and, the, and Detective Pease and Sheriff Cutting visited Washington. They gathered evidence and decided to arrest William Coy immediately. It is assumed they saw John Whelan's room, which had remained a bloody and cut up mess since late August. By this point, it was mid-October. So William Coy claimed on Saturday, August 29th, 1891, he learned that his wife was in North Beckett, so he went there. There, he met up with John and went to Westfield together and took a train back to Washington, arriving around 8 p.m. John Whalen went home and William Coy went to Pittsfield and later went home on the 11 p.m. train. So John, he said that John went home and he stayed out, went to Pittsfield, and then later went home. So when he returned home, the house was locked and the key left in its usual hiding place. He went into John's room and saw, quote, signs of a disturbance. He then went to the depot and asked if the watchman he, if he had seen John and he said no. Now, I couldn't find if the police asked the watchman if this was true or not, but he then went back home and spent the night. Quote, Sunday, he started for Albany and just here, another character appears in the story. George Kelly, another farmhand and a pal of Coy's and Wayland's red-headed, shiftless, drunken George Kelly. Very kind newspapers. So they met up at the depot on Sunday and went to Albany. They stayed the night at the Globe Hotel in room one, the room right next to the runaway wife. After this, George Kelly disappears and is next seen in West Springfield on Tuesday, where he was arrested as a principal in the murder of John Whalen. So that was the initial report about what happened and initially what um, William Coy said happened. So what did George, what happened with George here? So George Kelly claimed he went to the Coy house on Sunday, August 30th, because William asked him to help pack his things. William said his wife ran away and he was going to Albany to bring her home. He said he had a row with John Whalen the night before and, quote, pounded out of him a confession of the proposed elopement. He told George that there was blood in John's room because John had met with some accident. George said William seemed to have plenty of money and gave him $20 for helping him, which was a solid chunk of change. So the arrests. So when William Coy was arrested on October 12, 1891, he, quote, presented a stolid demeanor and seemed indifferent. He had $100 and John Whalen's watch in his possession. Um, clearly he's a dumbass. Um, he claimed that John gave him the watch and $100 to let the matter of him sleeping with his wife uh, drop. Quote, he stoutly asserted his innocence, probably thinking that his crime or the evidence, oh my goodness, evident, whoa, evidence of it were entirely obliterated. The body was then found the next day, October 13th, 1891, so clearly not very good at hiding evidence. So late Tuesday night, he was informed of the finding of the body of Waylon. His face blanched, his lip quivered, and he trembled perceptibly. 
He waived the reading of the warrant, pleaded not guilty, and was held without bail. George Kelly, when he was arrested, had a smile on his face when he was arrested, like I said. He stopped smiling um, when they told him he, they found the body. The warrant charging him with the murder was read, and he pleaded not guilty. He was held without bail. Um, and so he did end up being released. Um, some newspapers allude to suggesting that perhaps he helped William kill Waylon, or that he at least helped move the body. But you could say that William wouldn't have had to cut up the body unless he, you know, had to transport it by himself. Transport is just a weird word, but for that, but who knows? We don't actually know. Um, when I tried to figure out what exactly happened with George Kelly, um, later in life, the first thing I found was that a horse kicked him. Um, he was fine. He was kicked in the hand, but that was kind of funny. Um, so what exactly happened here? On Saturday, August 28th, 29th, rather, John Whalen collected $300 that was owed him from work. So he had planned to get his money and get his woman and go to Michigan. He spent the day with William Coy and then went home. Quote, when Waylon left the eastbound train at eight o'clock, he went his way up the lonely country road. And for the last time, he was never seen again except by his murderer or murderers until his mangled body was unearthed on the mountainside Tuesday afternoon. So officers believed Coy and Kelly entered the house around midnight when Waylon was sleeping. Quote, an axe was procured, and as the victim lay asleep, his head was crushed in by a heavy blow from the weapon. Death must have been instantaneous, as the skull was smashed in upon the brain. But to make the work more sure, the deadly axe was raised again, and heavy blows on the throat almost severed the head from the body. Then the dead man's legs were cut off, and in the early hours of the Sabbath morning, the bloody fragments were carried through the gloomy woods and hidden from sight on the bosom of the earth. So the Berkshire Eagle described it, quote, William Coy stepped from the cars and started up the road which John Whalen had taken. The moonlight fell upon him also, and he started guiltily as the leaves shivered in the night wind and before him stalked the angel of death, and beside him and on either hand walked two friends, jealousy and avarice, and he recognized them all. Stimulated by liquor and with murder in his heart, he crept stealthily to the same door which John Whalen entered and passed in. The death angel entered with him, gathered its harvest, and faded away. There was murder done that peaceful Sunday morning, and the bedding and the carpet were soaked with blood of the drunken man. Now, I can't, I can't resist including articles in this case because that, the drama, I can't get enough of the drama, but, okay, so that was the chair. So the trial. The trial lasted for a week in March of 1892, and they described it as one of the longest trials in the Berkshire history, and then it said it was about a week long, so doesn't sound too long nowadays, but back then. So William Coy was found guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced to be hanged. Quote, Calmly and coolly, the murderer told the jury of Wayland's death in that lonely shanty on Washington Mountain, 
and further related the horrible details about the mutilation of the victim's body. The story was such a cold-blooded one in substance and in the telling that the government considered a cross-examination of the defendant was unnecessary. Um, I can't even imagine that must have been horrific. So Coy testified that he got home, looked in John Whalen's trunk, and saw his wife's things in there. Then John came in with a stick in one hand and an axe in the other. He struck William with the club and raised the axe. But William, the hero of his own story here, um, was able to grab the axe and he struck him on the head. Whalen lied on the bed unconscious for two hours. He thought about telling the police, but, quote, didn't dare. Coy put his handkerchief to his eyes as he said this. Oh, very dramatic. Fake crying here. Instead, he took Waylon out into the yard and took the legs off, either with a saw or the axe. He couldn't recall because he was so excited. He buried the body in the woods and cleaned up the blood, quote, as best he could. He burned pieces of the carpet and mattress. He, quote, cut head so he could double the head back and get corpse into the grave. He threw the axe and shovel into the woods. Um, yeah, so... (laughs) His, that is his story of his own heroism there, of his self-defense. But uh, let's read the testimony of Dr. Frank K. Paddock, and let's see if that was even possible. So, he described Waylon's injuries using several skulls, parts of skulls, and bones to illustrate the nature of the injuries. The fracture of the skull was on the left side of the head, a piece of the bone, two and a half inches long and one inch wide, being driven into the brain. The throat was cut with an axe and the legs were cut off above the knees, the bones having been sawed. The fracture of the skull would not probably produce instant death, although it was necessarily fatal. Judging by the condition of the body when found, he was of the opinion that Waylon was still alive when his throat was cut. In the opinion of the witness, the blow that fractured the skull was given at right angles to the head. Foreman Bond at the jury inquired if the blow could have been given while the man was standing, as in self-defense. Dr. Paddock's reply was that he did not think it possible, as the head would not offer sufficient resistance. It was his opinion that Whalen must have been lying down when struck. The blood from the artery severed by such a blow would spurt out with considerable force. In reply to questions from Mr. Hibbard, witness stated that in case... A man was as drunk as Waylon was said to have been the night of the murder. He would... One second. Nope. I think we're good. Not sure what the police are doing out there, but... He would fall asleep within five minutes after lying down, and if let alone, would remain asleep 12 hours. Witness had examined matter scraped from the headboard of Waylon's bed and had found under the microscope blood corpuscles. The coat and vest worn by Waylon at the time of the murder was brought into the courtroom, and the production of these ghastly bloodstained mementos of the crime caused a sensation. Dr. Paddock had examined these garments. He found spatters of blood on the left side of the coat, while the right side of the both coat and vest was saturated with blood. This sub- evidence supports the Commonwealth's theory that Waylon was lying on his right side in the bed when struck. Dr. Frederick W. Okay, yep. And that's it for that part. But um, George Kelly, who was arrested as an accessory to the crime and afterwards discharged, 
went to the witness box considerably under the influence of liquor. So perhaps he was, as the new newspapers um, so kindly described him, he struggled laboriously through the story of the trip to Albany in search of Mrs. Coy. Coy was well supplied with money, paid all the expenses, and gave him $20 for his trouble. Mrs. Coy was easily found when her husband got ready to find her. Coy brought her a gold watch and a new cloak, and they all came home together. At the close of Kelly's direct testimony, court adjourned to Wednesday morning. So that, I just just described that last part there because just to show that he had been, um, George Kelly had been released. I'm not sure what I think if he was directly involved or not, but I guess we'll never know. Um, All I know is that a horse kicked him in the hand. So, So let's talk next about... So, Mrs. Coy also testified on behalf of her husband, but she made a bad impression, apparently. Quote, Her utter lack of maternal interest in her children was one heavy black mark against her. Then, too, she failed to convince the jury that she ever actually intended to elope with poor John Whelan. Oof. So, let's talk next about the hanging. So, on March 3rd, 1893... At 10.44, William Coy was hanged. His heart stopped beating after six minutes. And we'll describe it here. Coy was deathly pale. He remained silent, moving his head slightly to see if the straps were perfectly buckled, and swaying a trifle in his attitude as Deputy Wood placed the cap on his face. There was a moment of terrible silence when all was ready, broken by Dr. Newton's voice as he stepped forward and said in distinct and impressive tones, William Coy desires me to state that he has given his soul to God and that he goes to his death prepared. He meets his fate unflinchingly with charity to all and malice toward none. Dr. Newton stepped back to the right of the drop and Sheriff Crosby said, William Coy, is there anything you wish to say before the sentence of death is executed upon you? Coy looked straight ahead and replied, No, I have nothing to say, in a firm voice. The cap was drawn. Deputies Wood and Day withdrew the pin supporting the drop. Sheriff Crosby cleared his throat and said in a voice somewhat broken, William Coy, by virtue of this warrant to me directed, which has already been read to you, and in obedience to the command contained therein, it now becomes my official duty to execute the sentence of death upon you. May God have mercy on your soul. As he concluded, the sheriff stepped quickly to the spring and pressed his weight upon it. The trap flew back with a resounding bang, and Coy's body fell six feet below. The doctors pressed forward, watches in hand, and six minutes later, William Coy was dead. The body was cut down and laid in the coffin Coy's sister had supplied. Examination showed that Coy's neck was broken and that death was probably instantaneous. I thought you said it was six minutes long. The execution passed off without a hitch. The only distressing thing about the event was the violent grief of Coy's sister, who had been had to be sent away from the jail before the hour for death arrived. Now, I can't even imagine finding out that your sibling murdered someone and then having to prepare the coffin for the execution. Um, so let's talk about Coy's last statement here. Quote, and this is from the Boston Globe, I killed Waylon in self-defense. I did not rob him. I am well pleased with Mr. Newton 
Mr. Clymer, and Mr. Horst, and they have done well for me and been friends to me, and my two counsel have done good work for me. I lay up no grudge against any man. I forgive them all. I thank my counsel and all that they could do for me. I hope the newspapermen will leave my name out hereafter. Mm, sorry. I die a good Christian and prepare to meet my God and my friends. It was not a cold-blooded murder. I killed Waylon in self-defense. This is my last word, you know. I did not rob him of anything that he had, and my woman was innocent from knowing anything about it. I killed Waylon alone, and I buried Waylon alone, and carried him to the woods alone. But there were folks that knew he was dead that didn't tell the truth. These are my last words. William Coy. Signed in the presence of P.J. Keefe, Jr., guard. So I'll let you guys make your, um, come to your own conclusion on if it was self-defense or not. Mm, personally, it doesn't sound like self-defense to me. So as a bonus, I want to share with you a passage from the Pittsfield Sun, which I'm just including for the drama. So the disposal of the body must have been swiftly determined upon. Perhaps the legs were severed in order to make the gruesome burden less cumbersome to carry up the dark mountain road. Perhaps the saw was brought into play to fit the body into the rude grave. At all events, the body was buried at midnight and all trace of the crime obliterated. William Coy went back in the gray light of the dawn to the scene of the butchery, exchanging the word with Mrs. Gear on his way. Then he went to work by daylight on that Sabbath morning to hide the telltale evidence of the crime in the victim's rooms. Carefully, he ripped out the bloody part of the old gray rag carpet and the stained portions of the pillow and mattress. Having done this much and hidden the bloody remnants, he thought himself safe. He had his victim's money. The body was buried in an out-of-way place on the mountain, and no traces of his crime remained. There was a lot of traces of crime, actually, but anyway. He could say that Wayland had gone west, and no one would ever be the wiser, but he forgot the blood that spattered on the bed and wall. Little thought he that his victim's body was too near the surface, and when one day, and that day so near, exclamation point, be uncovered to the sunlight. <laughs> Very dramatic. And that is the drama and the murder of John Whalen in Washington, Massachusetts. Now, there are plenty of photos of this case because it was actually a pretty big case in its time. And by the time you listen to this end of the story, um, they'll be up. So you can follow the Axe Murder Diaries on Instagram. If you have a request for an area for me to cover, you can email me at theaxemurderdiaries at gmail.com. That's axe with A-X-E. Now, if I can't find something in your specific town, at least try to find something in your area that you could drive to. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review. If you did not, um, don't, you know, still have a great day though. Um, but that's about it. Thanks for listening. Bye.